last week we were merely uh, doing a recap on what we had seen so far in the doctrines of grace and this week we are actually going to move forward and we're going to be speaking on the topic of limited atonement and this is a vital topic it's a very deep topic theologically there's a lot of things that I want to talk about uh, when it comes to atonement um, so we're going to be spending several weeks doing this don't don't uh, worry that you've got to try and understand all of this today. There's things and concepts I may touch on lightly that I'm going to delve in more deeply um, later. And we're going to try and go about this in a, uh, a systematic way and, and a bit in a progressive way. Start to scratch the surface, then, then dig deeper and deeper so we can understand it. So as I, I talked about before, you know, we have these terms for the doctrines of grace uh, that come from and are set by that acrostic acronym TULIP. And limited atonement is, is one of them. And it's kind of a, a, I guess you could say a problematic um, label because it's, it's misunderstood what, what is meant by limited atonement. Well, James Montgomery... Boyce and his co-author Philip Graham Riken, they like the term, and many of you have heard this, I know many of you use this term, I've heard it from you, particular redemption. Then we have our late brother R.C. Sproul, he liked the term Christ's purposeful atonement. I think both of these are excellent terms and make the concept a little clearer than we might get from the term limited atonement. Because the question comes up, if we're talking to others about this, the question will frequently come up, well, what is limited about Christ's atonement for us? And we're going to discuss this. If you recall, and it's been a while, of course, our previous topic was unconditional election, right? We started with the sovereignty of God to lay the foundation, then total depravity, the T, then unlimited, excuse me, unconditional election, the U, um, and that, that topic, unconditional election, we have to realize that election doesn't save anyone. Uh, so now we're going to get into how and who the Lord God saves. And I think a, 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 a great verse for us to think about in this topic is in the book of Jonah, chapter 2, verse 9. And that prophet, we all know his story. <clears throat> after um, he rebels and flees from the Lord and then is caught in that horrible storm and is uh, thrown overboard and is swallowed by the great fish, spends three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. 
and he comes to an understanding of what the Lord wants, what the Lord requires, in fact, what the Lord demands of him. And as he struggles with this, we get to kind of hear his interior voice as he's in the belly of this fish. You know, of course, metaphorically and typologically, we should understand that as Christ being buried and in the tomb for three days. Of course, Christ is very much aware of what he's doing. He does it purposely. But Jonah is struggling with all of this stuff. And then in, in verse, the end of verse 9 in chapter 2, he realizes, and he says this, he declares this, salvation belongs to the Lord. So his mission, his task given by the Lord God to preach to the Ninevites, that's the Lord God's decision. That's not Jonah's decision. He understands that. So salvation does belong to God, does belong to the Lord, doesn't it? And we must understand salvation in the light that God reveals it to us. He reveals it to us in the manner in which he saves. And we can struggle with that. And often, and we're going to see that, that people have over the centuries, because it doesn't really fit always with man's reason and logic that people think there's, that, that can't be right. I think it'd be better this way, or that's not fair. So we're gonna, we're gonna take a look at all of these things. <clears throat> Bearing in mind that salvation is a divine work. It's not the work of mortal men. That's, that's what's key in this concept of atonement. The Trinity is involved in this. So we think of the world religions and even some Christian cults who deny the Trinity. And, and as we go through this, think about how, um, how the, the, the Godhead, the three persons in the Godhead work together, and can any one of them be left out of this, and can we still have salvation? If salvation for us is designed and ordained by the Father, then accomplished by the Son, and applied by the Holy Spirit. All three are equal in this. All three persons of the Trinity are in agreement in this, in this plan of redemption and the execution of it. Theologically, we have a, we have a term for this, perhaps you're familiar with, uh, the covenant of redemption. Pastor Steve um, talked about this when he was doing his uh, lesson on, on the covenants. Uh, it's very vital. So what we've seen so far, if you recall last week, we've seen there really are two views of salvation in Christianity. There's the Reformed view, frequently called the Calvinist view. But as we discussed, this didn't originate with Calvin. So that's a bit of a misnomer. Calvin was a, a great theologian, a great churchman, very important, of course, in the Great Reformation. But he didn't come up with this stuff. So, um, but the reformers and other men at the, at the time of, of Calvin and afterwards, along with Calvin, kind of uh, reintroduced it to the church and demanded that we must abide by this because this is the word of God. So these two views, we have these two views, reformed and Arminian. Remember the Arminians at the, the Synod of Dort, 
right? They were the followers of Jacob Arminius. So another late great theologian of the 20th century, J.I. Packer, he writes of the distinction between these two theological views in his introductory essay to John Owen's great work, The Death of Death in the Death of Christ. Now that's an important work. We are going to be uh, uh, referring to it frequently through this um, uh, lesson on atonement to, in, the, in the weeks to come. Um, and as many of you know, Owen is very difficult to read. Uh, he's not one of the more accessible of the Puritans, but very profitable if you can read them. And I understand there are some modernized, ver modernized versions of this work. I've not um, read them, um, but uh, if someone has, maybe you know you could let us know if um, if you found it uh, uh, more approachable. Let's say. So, <clears throat> what does Packer have to say about Reformed theology and Arminian theology? Well, this is really striking. This this sentence from his essay, he says, um, and this is a very important point that that Packer. Makes And he's not pulling any punches here. He's not trying to please men. He's not trying to make friends on both sides. He's not looking for the middle way. Like, I'm going to go down the middle way and everybody can join in with me. No, Packer says the difference between them is not primarily one of emphasis, but of content. Now, it, it, it takes a while. You think about that. It's like, well, that, that doesn't sound that bad. Well, no, it's not bad. It doesn't sound that divisive. But what, this is what he's saying, in other words. This difference is between two different things. It's not between one thing described differently. He's saying Arminianism and Reformed theology are different. It's not like, well, we, we, we all think the same thing, we just talk about it differently. He's saying, no, that's, that's not the case. Why? Why is he making this difference? Well, he goes on to say, one of them, Reformed, proclaims a God who saves. The other, the Arminian, speaks of a God who enables men to save themselves. The Reformed view pre presents the three great acts of the Holy Trinity for the recovering of lost mankind. Election by the Father, redemption by the Son, and calling by the Spirit. As directed towards the same persons and securing their salvation infallibly. In other words, those that are elected, redeemed, and called, it's, it's all the same. It's not like, well, you have some elected, some called, some redeemed, and, and they're just, you know, hither, thither, and yon, depending on how they respond to the gospel. The Arminian gives each act a different reference. In other words, the objects of redemption being all of mankind, those who hear the gospel being different, because obviously not all of mankind is going to hear the gospel, right? Over, over history, this has not happened and has not happened yet. Perhaps there will be a time, perhaps, we don't know, when, when that will happen. Um, but those who hear the gospel and of election, and then those hearers who respond. The Arminian view denies that any man's salvation is secured by any one of these acts of the Trinity. 
The two theologies thus conceive the plan of salvation in quite different terms, according to Packer. One makes salvation depend on the work of God. The other, the Arminian, it depends on the work of man. In the same essay, Packer says the Arminian concept, as it was debated at the Synod of Dort in 1618. So this is not a Reformed theologian saying, this is what I think the, the, the Arminians think. He's saying, no, this was what they presented as their argument that was discussed at the Synod of Dort. So it's from the Arminians that this comes. The Arminians declare that Christ's death did not ensure the salvation of anyone, for it did not secure the gift of faith to anyone. Because the Arminians deny, according to Packer, that there is such a gift. There is no gift of faith in the Arminian scheme. What it did, rather, was to create a possibility of salvation for everyone if they believe. And the emphasis is on they, the human beings, man. So we're going to see these two different things, these, these two different views of atonement. We're going to see the Reformed view, and we're going to compare and contrast with the Arminian view. Because for many of us, unless, unless you were brought up in a Reformed church, and many of us were not, the Arminian view is kind of the water that we've swam in. And, you know, when you learn something, someone once said, and I, some, some commentator, theologian, and I think it's, it, there's, there's truth to this, but the, the gospel first presented to a person is what that person invariably clings to. And it's very difficult to break from that. It takes a lot of work. If you were presented the Arminian view or some other view of salvation to, to understand and um, hold on to the Reformed view is not a matter of just hearing our preaching once. It's a matter of study. It's a matter of practice. It's a matter of continually hearing. So we're going to have to, we're going to be spending time on this because this, this is something that I've had to learn coming from um, a, a cultish background, then an Arminian background, and then finally the Reformed uh, viewpoint. This was, I saw this as being vital. I have to understand this because this is different from what I've been taught before. But boy, I tell you what, it made so much sense. It was like, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what, what the Bible is saying. And I don't, have to under, I don't have to do all these mental gymnastics trying to make you know, the, the Bible match up what my pastor is telling me. So, what do we mean by atonement? Number one, I think we should talk about that. Just so we're, you know, we're clear, it's, it's important. Um, so atonement is one of the few theological terms with roots in the English language. <clears throat> it's a process by which two typically estranged or, or parties that are um, you know, at odds with one another are made at one. 
with one another. It means just what it sounds like it means, which, boy, thank goodness for that. Occasionally something like that happens, so it doesn't happen often enough, does it? The Old Testament usually mentions atonement in the context of worship, primarily in reference to uh, the sacrificial system in, in the temple or in the ta- tabernacle. Um, and the word um, does not occur in the New Testament, but the concept is applied throughout, particularly in the what we might call the metaphoric imagery Uh, used to describe the saving work of Christ, as Christ being our sacrifice, the the one and only sacrifice to to atone for our sins. So atonement in Hebrew is kafar. It's interesting, kafar means to smear over, to cover over like with pitch. If you were to um, build a big boat and you need to cover it with pitch, kafar is the covering, the smearing of it. And you think about that, so it's a covering over of sin, isn't it? Especially in the Old Testament. Because the sacrifices were different than than the sacrifice of, of the new covenant. They didn't accomplish the same thing. So, um, this, this word, of course, is not found in, in the Greek, although the principle is central to New, New Testament theology. Instead, we have this Greek word, helisterion which most frequently is translated in our English Bibles as propitiation. We've all heard that term, right? Both these terms are used to refer to a physical object in the Old Testament, though. Both are used to refer to the covering or the lid on the Ark of the Covenant. It's it's referred to as kaporet, so from the word kafar. It's a, it's a noun. It means a place where the covering occurred. So upon which the, the high priest, the one high priest, would sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. So we get this term that means propitiation in the Greek, in the New Testament, and in the Old Testament, this idea is translated, and it translated as both in our English versions as mercy seat. That's the covering of the ark. So it's, um, it's, uh, I think it's a bit confusing because it's not so much that, that this cover, this, this thing that was built under God's instructions is the means of atonement, but it's where atonement takes place in the sacrificial system. So that's how we understand these concepts and, and how they come together. So you can see that, that, um, that just a literal reading without an understanding of what is being talked about and why these terms are used can be problematic. It, it can, it can uh, 
take us uh, maybe on a rabbit trail that, that really doesn't um, uh, help. So the New Testament helps us to frame the, the ancient Israelite understanding of atonement around the person and work of Christ, centered especially on Jesus' death on a Roman cross. So how important is the atonement? It's vital, absolutely vital. Without the atonement, there can be no unconditional election. The previous concept and the doctrines of, of grace. Without the atonement, we are stuck in our total depravity. Oops. We begin to see now how these doctrines relate to one another. How it's it's not wise to accept, to pull one out and say, I don't like that one. I don't like limited atonement because it just doesn't seem fair and it might hurt somebody's feelings. Okay, that's, that's, that's often what we see, right? And, and when we talk, I don't know if we're going to get to it today, but I want to talk about theories of atonement. And we'll see in the theories of atonement how man's, idea of reason and fairness comes into play in how theologians interpret how the atonement works. It's important. And excuse me, I feel like I'm stringing a whole bunch of big words together. I, I hope I'm making sense. But, and if I'm not, bear with me, I think it will become clearer as we go through this. So there's no single definitive New Testament explanation of the atonement. It's not like we can, like I could say, well, look, go to this uh, book, chapter, and verse, and that's everything you need to know about the atonement. Because the atonement is such a marvelous work. It is so deep. It is so varied in its scope that we're going to look at a bunch of different passages so we get an idea of what the atonement is all about this topic this 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 subject what what the lord god has done for us is worthy of this time i i would say that that we look through these things so we're going to be doing a lot of flipping about in our bible so um bear with me uh as we do that so first off <clears throat> let's think about this Jesus is presented as having paid the penalty for sin. And a good verse for that is Romans chapter 3, verses 25 through 26. Romans 3, 25 through 26. And if you, if you just want to listen to me um, read the verses, that's fine. If you don't have time to flip there and you just want to write down the verse... What the, the, the book and chapter and verse for later reference, that, that's fine too. Um, so Romans 3, 25, 26, this is what Paul says. He's talking about the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. 
whom God put forward as a propitiation. There's that word, there's that, that Greek word, helostron. Propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now if we were just going to deal with one verse, I would say that this one's a pretty good um, couple of verses, pretty good passage that gives us um, the, the, the essence, the idea. <clears throat> but we're going to go further. That's never enough for us, right? We always want to try and go a little bit deeper, a little bit deeper than the average bear. So Jesus died in place of sinners so they, that they might become God's righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What a wonderful act. And notice, as, as most of you are well aware, that these passages that we read all concern the, God, the, the, the Trinity, the Godhead, doing all of the work. Right? We're not, we haven't read anything, nor are we going to read anything, where we have to do certain things. Jesus redeemed sinners through his blood. Ephesians 1, 7. Ephesians 1, 7. You know, I had to buy a new preaching Bible because I've marked this up so bad I can't read some of the verses. It's like, I went, a little, I went a little nuts here. In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. <clears throat> Jesus paid the price for sinners to go free. Galatians 5.1 now, in any of these things I've mentioned, there are numerous verses that talk about, um, like this, Jesus paying the price for us to go free. Uh, it's, there's not just one. Um, so we could go through a, many more verses than we're, we are going to go through. But I wanted to give you the idea behind each of these principles that we're talking about. So... Jesus paid the, the price for sinners to go free, Galatians 5.1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Jesus won the victory over death and sin, sharing with believers the victory. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 55 through 57. 1 Corinthians 15, 55 through 57. Paul here quoting from 
the Old Testament, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And Paul answers that. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. In Jesus' victory, he paraded in spectacular fashion by his cross. It was, a, it was a demonstration that at the time was missed in the physical world, right? That the Romans who did it, the Jews that demanded it, and the disciples who witnessed the event did not see what was occurring in the spiritual realm. But Paul tells us what occurred in the spiritual realm in Colossians 2.15 by the mighty work of the cross. Colossians 2.15 He disarmed the rulers and authorities. So we read this and people might think, well, that's, you know, that just talks about the, the Jewish council and the Roman governor, etc., etc. But no, these words in the Greek that Paul uses, he uses in other places also to refer to uh, powerful spiritual entities that are, are, that are our enemies. So he disarmed the rulers and authorities, Jesus did, and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him at the cross. He put an end, Jesus put an end to the hostility between warring human factions, most notably the Jews and the Gentiles. Back to Ephesus, Ephesians 2. 14 through 18. Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one. Now, now Paul's referring to the Jews and Gentiles, Gentiles here. He's made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances so, okay, that's, he's not doing away with the law, not the Mosaic law, but with the ceremonial ordinances, right? Which included what? What was the sign of the Abrahamic covenant? Circumcision. Gentiles coming to Christ did not have to be circumcised. That, that, that sign was put away. That he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is a great work. One of the great works that Christ did. The tension, the, the enmity, the hostility between the Jew and the Gentile is ancient. And unfortunately, it's still with us, isn't it? We are seeing it today in horrible fashion. But look what Christ has done. It's only in Christ 
that something like this, an age-old problem, can be resolved no matter what the politicians try to do, no matter what the statesmen of, we have, we have few of those in, in, in this day and age, what, no, no matter what they do to bring these sides together, it never lasts. Usually doesn't work. It is only in Christ that this can be reconciled. Christ's example of patient suffering, according to God's will and the demands of his kingdom, is a precedent like case law. It's something for his people to follow. This is like an example. And, and, and Peter talks about this in 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter 2 verse 21. 1 Peter 2 21 through 23. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. As we go forward in this lesson, bear in mind how these different Bible verses that, we've, that we're looking at here and these, um, these concepts that are varied, they all focus on the atonement that Jesus brings, but there's nuances in it, and I hope you're seeing that. Well, over the ages, theologians have focused on certain ones of, of these and kind of forgotten the others. And we're going to see this when we look at the different theories of atonement that have been presented to the church uh, over the centuries. And bear that in mind, you know, when we look at this, why there's, why there's some disagreement in this. But we're going to find one that fits really, really good. And it's the one the Reformers teach. So Jesus' example of patient suffering according to God's will and the demands of his kingdom is a precedent for people to follow, like Peter tells us. Peter's statement here captures really, in a, in a marvelous way, the means and importance of Jesus' ministry of atonement. In the next verse, uh, in 1 Peter 2, verse 24, Peter writes, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Peter's telling us that this, this, <laughs> this changes everything. And when we come to Christ, when we are transformed, when we are regenerated, we are new creations. We should not be like we were before. Now, for many of us, this is a process that we go through. This is what I experienced. It was a, it was a process. It, I, because we have that sin nature still in us, don't we? So we struggle against that. But we are new creations, and that is why Peter can say that Christ can be our model. We will never attain his perfection in this world, but we can strive for it. And there's no one better that we should emulate, that we should pattern our lives after, other than the Lord Jesus. 
As Paul said, Paul, Paul told his, 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 his people that he, in the churches he planted, follow my example because I am following the example of our Lord. Paul was saying, you can do what I do only because I am doing what the Lord did. <clears throat> so in light of such passages, the historic status of the cross as a symbol of the Christian faith is fitting. The cross is where Jesus died, and Jesus' sinless death is why sinners can have life. In New Testament terms, atonement and cross are very nearly synonymous. When we talk about the cross, we're talking about atonement. And when we talk about atonement, we can only be referring to the cross, because the cross is the only place where atonement, true atonement, has taken place. The entire book of Hebrews explains that to the Jews, the Jewish Christians who were struggling with the social pressure they were under to go back to the old faith. Their families, their friends, their neighbors, everybody around them was like, you have forsaken the law of Moses. You have turned against the God of Israel. Come back. Come back before it's too late. And the author of Hebrews is, going, is saying, no, no, do not go back. That that sacrificial system was for a time. That time has passed. You cannot go back to it because the shadow is gone. Because the Son has appeared. The Son of God. And he is now the one and only sacrifice. You're futile if you go back to this. So this gives us a sense, I hope, of what atonement is all about. We have a few more minutes. I'm going to try and talk a little bit about at least a couple of the theories of atonement. I think it's helpful to see how much thought has gone into this over the ages in the church. And it, at the very least, we can look at this and we can say to ourselves, oh, I don't feel so bad because look, how the church has, you know, has had to discuss this and, and come up with these different things. Um, and thanks be to, the, to God, to the Lord, that this has happened so we, we get these things in a clearer manner than, than many Christians did in the, in the very early days of the Christian church. Faith never changes, right? But we understand doctrine. At a, at a deeper, better level as time goes on. Nothing changes. It's the same. It's just our understanding we, is, is opened up. We, we, we become a bit more enlightened. But we have to be careful in this enlightening that we don't use it in the humanistic term of logic and reason, like, well, that's superstitious. We're enlightened, and we're going to explain it in the, in the light of human log logic. No, that's not what I mean. So this varied New Testament language 
that we looked at with these different passages has given rise in church history to numerous theories of atonement. Now, I want to understand what I mean by theories of atonement. By theory, I mean how God accomplished atonement through the cross, not if he accomplished it. That is settled. He did accomplish atonement through the cross. But how does this work? That's the difficult question. And maybe it's not completely answerable. But let's look and see the theories that have been brought forth on how did God do this? How exactly did it work? First off, very early in the the, uh, Middle Ages, we had uh, a, a French theologian of the scholastic group, uh, Peter Abelard, 1074 to 1142. He stresses the effect of the atonement on those who believe it um, uh, involves Jesus mainly as just being our example and that we can be morally better people through Jesus' example. Well, there's a little bit of truth in that, isn't there? Because we looked at that passage where Peter said, you know, we will pattern our lives upon Jesus Christ. That's what believers should do. Well, Abelard kind of takes this to an extreme, and he says this is, this is the atonement, that we can, be, we can be better people, that we can... And then later, like in the 20, late 19th, into the 20th century, especially in the charismatic movement and in some of the evangelical churches, this idea of sinless perfection came about, right? If we could be like Jesus, Jesus was perfect, then we can be perfect. So this idea is is popular in modern theology today. Liberal theologians are still grasping onto this moral influence uh, theory. But like I said, and we're going to see this with all these different theories, is that there is an element of truth in each of them. It's not that any of them that we're going to talk about are like this is completely, completely wrong. There's the conqueror theory. This was popular mainly in what we call the patristic period. The patristic period, also called the time of the church Fathers is basically after the end of the apostolic age, so after Jesus' apostles had all died, then it's their students, the men that they had discipled and trained, become the leaders in the, tr- the church. So they're the church fathers, and we call it patristic, of course, from the Latin for father. And that, that ends, or excuse me, it continues for about seven centuries. Um, generally, scholars think it, they agree that it ends um, around the 8th century at the time of the um, Second Council of uh, Nicaea in the late 700s. There was a first council, the, the really important one that we should, we've all heard of, uh, in 325, but there was a second one, you know, like uh, 400 years later. So the conqueror theory stresses victory over sin, death, and the devil that the atonement accomplished. Christ is a conqueror. This also preserves, I should say, an important truth like the moral influence theory, right? I mean, this is true, right? Christ is a conqueror. But also like that theory, it's too limited 
uh, in view. Um, that there are more elements to the atonement than just the defeat. Jesus certainly did defeat sin, death, and the devil. But that mere defeat, how does that, how does that get applied to us? So that's, that's the question that the conqueror theory doesn't answer. It goes a little bit, just like the moral influence theory goes a little bit, but it doesn't go far enough. So with that, we're going to pick this up again, and we're going to continue talking about theories of atonement and, and more about atonement. So join me in a word of prayer, and upon my amen, you'll be dismissed for a break before the 11 o'clock preaching. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for this for the reality of atonement. Father, we, we, we're talking now about theories, as you know, but it, we are living the reality because you've saved us, Father, and we're grateful for that. We're grateful for the work done by the Son and how it's been applied to us by the Holy Spirit and the fact that you ordained all of this. Father, we give thanks. We give thanks that we can be together on your day, on the Lord's day, and, and celebrate this. Father, bless the rest of our day here at Sovereign Grace bless our sister churches as they go about their worship on the Lord's Day. Father, we pray for the 11 a.m. preaching from Pastor Steve. May it be a blessing um, to all of us, and, and we pray for uh, Pastor Steve and his presentation. Father, thank you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.